Before we uh, read and uh, think about God's word together, let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we <clears throat> read your word, as we uh, talk about it and think about it for just a few minutes, that you uh, would meet us, that you uh, would visit us by your spirit that you've given to your church, that you would be our teacher, that you would show us the grace of Jesus, that you would change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So uh, as we have said and seen and sung already, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday that the church remembers and celebrates that Jesus' promise to send a helper has been kept. Uh, Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Spirit came to rest on about 120 women and men who were gathered in worship in Jeru- for, for worship in Jerusalem. And after the Spirit came to rest on them, through them, the world started to be slowly turned upside down. And the Spirit has been with the church. He has been with you and with me and with our sisters and brothers all over the world ever since. He is with us now, church, right now, this morning, in this place, moving among us like the wind, doing whatever he wants to do. And one of the things that the Spirit does is give people like us all that we need to grow up in our faith. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. So let me read the first half of Ephesians 4 for us. I'll read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. 
So uh, as I've mentioned from time to time, I grew up in Baltimore. And uh, so when it comes to professional football, I root for the Ravens. Uh, and I know that that uh, troubles some of you who are in here. Um, but I promise you that this is not a story about football. So I hope that you will bear with me. See what I did there, bear with me? <laughs> Terrible. Uh, being a fan of any out-of-town teams means that you have to figure out how to watch games because they are not on local television. So I'm not ashamed to tell you that every once in a while I end up at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings over on Clybourne Avenue um, because I know that at least one TV there will have the Ravens game on on a Sunday. So once I was there with a friend watching the game, and the server came over and asked us what we wanted to eat. Now, as a general rule of thumb, if there is a food that is listed in the name of the restaurant, like Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, I think most people would agree that that is the food that one should order in that place. But I had made the mistake of reading the menu. And there was a burger on that menu that sounded really good. The description of that burger uh, made it sound amazing, and I developed this taste for it. So when the server came over, I asked her if that particular burger was any good. And she looked me dead in the eye and she said, the burgers here are terrible. You should order the wings. So I ordered the burger. And she was absolutely right. It was not good. And when she came around later and she asked how everything was, I told her that she was right. I told her that I should have listened to her. And she laughed, and she actually offered to take it back and get me something else. But I told her, I'm going to suffer through this thing as a means of teaching myself a lesson. Do not be distracted by shiny things. I felt like a little kid, you know. <laughs> Don't touch the oven because you'll get burned. But the oven looks so shiny and nice. So you touch the oven, and you get burned. Kid. 101. And that's the kind of image that the Apostle Paul draws on for his friends in that little church when he encourages them towards maturity. Maybe you heard that language as we read it together, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about. And one of the remarkable things about that line is that the Apostle Paul includes himself in it. Right? So that we may no longer be children. That is uh, honesty and that is humility. This part of the letter is about growing up and about how that happens by the help of the Spirit. And I'm telling you that all of us here who are Christians, starting with the preacher, all of us, need to be encouraged towards maturity. As Paul puts it in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So this is a little, uh, a little bit reductive, but the first few chapters of this letter, the first three chapters, have largely been a picture of the Christian faith from above. It's this grand, beautiful vision about how God makes a new family through faith in Jesus. How he calls people like us into this new family through faith in Jesus. And then starting here in chapter 4, Paul begins to paint a picture of the Christian life from below. Right? About how to live in that family. How to live new life in a new family called the church. That's the calling 
that he is talking about. What does it look like to live a life worthy of that? And Paul begins in verse 2 with a list of moral virtues. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Forbearance, or as it is translated most of the time in English, bearing with one another. And love. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And I think it's worth mentioning that Paul has crafted this list to hit at first like a splash of cold water in the first century culture to which he is writing, and in particular to this church that he's writing to, which is made up of mostly pagan converts to Christianity. You need to know that the first thing on that list, humility, was not a virtue that was celebrated. In fact, it was not even considered a virtue. It was a way of being that was considered soft and weak and distasteful. In the Greek language, that word for humility often connoted being debased or being crushed. But Paul, he leads with it. Humility. Humility is that way of being that means that we don't enter, people like us don't enter into every human interaction looking for respect for ourselves. That's what humility is. We don't walk into relationships with other people looking for respect for ourselves. Humility is that way of being that refuses to treat ourselves as the most important factor in all of our human transactions. Put positively, to practice humility is to face other human beings as fellow image bearers from whom we can receive and from whom we have much to learn. And when humility is governed and when it's controlled by love, which is the binding virtue, the last virtue on this list, when humility is governed and controlled by love, it becomes one of the most powerful and transformative virtues that human beings can ever practice. Because when humility is bound with love, then others are not only those from whom we can learn and from whom we can receive, they are definitely that. But when humility is bound with love, we look at other people as those whose good we can seek before we seek our own good. And that, that changes people. It changes people for good and forever. Humility bound with love is what made Jesus move towards people like you and me. Humility bound together with love, alloyed with love, is what made him carry a cross for your good and for mine and for the life of the world. And humility is a marker of maturity for us. Humility is what people who are growing up in the faith look like. So Paul leads with humility. Even though he knows how it's going to make him sound to his friends. Even though he knows he's going to take it on the chin, he leads with humility. Because then, as always, the Christian faith challenges all deeply held cultural beliefs. And that's really how this whole list of virtues works. Gentleness and patience and forbearance, all with love controlling and guiding them. Paul's 
letter to the Colossian church shares a lot of similarities with this one. And I love how he puts it when he, when he lists a similar set of virtues in chapter 3 of Colossians. And he gets to the end and he says, Above all of these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And church, that list of virtues in verse 2 is worth taking some time with. Like using it and meditating on it, seeing it as a mirror into our own lives, allowing us to ask ourselves, do I look like this? <laughs> or maybe uh, even better, even though it's a lot scarier, asking someone that we love, asking someone that we trust how and where those virtues are showing up in our lives and how or where those virtues are not showing up. People like us don't just fall into those things. We don't just wake up in the morning and practice virtue. They are cultivated, they are nurtured together with the Holy Spirit through prayer, through worship, through the sacraments, and through the daily intentional practice of them. And that leads me to something else I wanna say about those virtues because Paul makes much of this other piece they are communal. Virtues are not, they are not how we think about stuff. <laughs> Virtues are not something, some set of beliefs floating up in the sky somewhere that we get to check off. That is not what virtues are. Virtues are how we actually are in life. We don't practice them sitting alone in our homes and we don't practice them in the increasingly isolated and cut off worlds that we virtually inhabit. Virtues are made of blood and they're made of sweat, and they're made of tears, and they're made of muscle. They're physically embodied and physically practiced, and they are honed with one another first in this family that we call the church. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 3, when he tells his friends to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and then he launches into all of those ones in verses four through six. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago when we celebrated our 40th anniversary as a church and we read Ephesians 2 together. Paul there made such a big deal out of the fact that the cross of Jesus makes a new family. It makes a new humanity. People who had formerly wanted exactly nothing to do with one another now find themselves serving together and worshiping together and living together and loving one another. That is what unity is. And this unity, Paul says, is one of the works of the Spirit. He has given us a new family. He has made us one. And now that the Spirit has made it happen, we need to be eager to guard it. And we need to be eager to nurture our unity. And one of the ways that we guard and nurture unity is to practice those virtues with one another. <laughs> Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. Even and especially when we find that really hard to do even and especially when the fracturing that has been happening at least in the American church over the last few years seems insurmountable, it seems unfixable, it seems beyond hope of repair. For example, 
The extent to which we allow ourselves as God's people to become beholden to any political will, left or right, or any political will in between, the extent to which we allow ourselves to become beholden to any political will is exactly the extent to which we will allow ourselves to be riven in two. The American church has been suckered into this again and again and again in my lifetime. But we are not agents of any political will. Our loyalties and our agencies belong to the triune God, to the one spirit, the one Lord, one God and Father of all. And then our loyalties and our agencies rest secondarily with this one body and one hope and one faith and one baptism that we share. No one's saying it's easy. No one's saying it's easy to work hard to guard and maintain that unity. But when we do, it is surprising and compelling and beautiful. As a matter of fact, Paul says in verse 3 of this letter that our unity, the way that we guard and maintain it and live in it, is how the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the whole broken world. So, of course... Maintaining something as important as the spirit-made unity of the church is hard. Of course it is difficult. It requires the cultivation and practice of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, all controlled and given direction by love. But, Paul says, but, Paul writes in verse 7, almost like he knows he has been asking a lot, of these young Christians. So here's some relief. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We have been given grace, and that grace looks like gifts from Jesus to each of us. Paul quotes from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He is applying that psalm to Jesus, who, after he ascended, kept his promise to send the helper, to send the Spirit to the church. And one of the things the Spirit does is give gifts from Jesus to each one of us, to every one of us. As Paul puts it in one of his letters to Corinth, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we have been given what we need to grow up. We've been given what we need to mature into the people that we have been made, into, that we have been made to be. We, we have been given gifts to help us practice and cultivate virtue, to help us guard the unity of the church. We've been given gifts. In verse 11, Paul uh, lists five of them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Those happen to be roles, roles that were incredibly important for the establishment of the church. But that list is by no means an exhaustive list of the gifts that the Spirit brings from the ascended Jesus to people like us. Together, Paul and Peter, they list at least 20 of these kinds of gifts. I don't even think those lists are comprehensive. Some of them sound spectacular, and some of them sound prosaic. Stuff like wisdom, and knowledge, and healing, and giving, and serving, and mercy, and doing administration. <laughs> and here is the purpose of them, Paul says, to equip us for the work that we have been called to do together in this world. To build us up, to grow us, as Paul says in verse 13, until we attain 
the unity of the faith. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. They have been given to us so that we can all start to look like Jesus. The gifts that God gives to the church through each one of us, through every one of us in here, are among the most important graces that we have to keep us from being like kids in our faith. <laughs> Tossed to and fro, carried about, taken in by cunning and crafty schemes, distracted by shiny things, easily fooled, taken in by whatever was the last thing that we heard or taken in by whoever spoke the loudest or taken in by whoever said whatever they, stupid thing they said in the most entertaining way, undiscerning, easily slighted, self-absorbed. That's how we all start out and that's how we all are sometimes, even the Apostle Paul. But Jesus gives us gifts. Through the Spirit, so that we don't have to be children anymore. And one of the most important things this means is that, is, is that we need each other. We cannot mature, we cannot grow up in our faith, we cannot become the people that God created us to be without each other. We as a church need all of the particular gifts that Jesus has given to us here at Covenant. We need them all. And we as a church, as Covenant, need all of the particular gifts that God has given all of his churches all over the world. That's how it works, Paul says. In verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Only together do we grow up in every way to him who is the head, Jesus. Only together. We need each other. We cannot be Christians without the church. We cannot because it is in the life and worship of the church it is in the using and the sharing of the particular gifts that we have been given by Jesus through the Spirit. It is in the cultivation and in the practice of virtues together. It is in the watchful, eager maintenance of our unity. It is in those things that we grow up into the people God made us to be. Grown-ups in the faith. Good for one another and good for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that he is always working overtime, unceasingly, without rest, to grow us up. Help us, Father, to do everything that we need on our side of things to not resist, to work with your spirit in us, growing us and maturing us, building us up together in love. Do this. Father, so that we uh, can be your people for the life of this broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.